Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have the one and only Dr. Spencer Nadolski coming on the podcast. This podcast has aired in the past. This is a repurposed episode, but it is one of our, mo- uh, one of our more popular interviews, and it really hammers on a lot of good information that we get questions on constantly, specifically hormones and fat loss. This is something we always get asked about. Do hormones override uh, calories and calories' ability to lose fat, or is calories all that matters? Well, today we're going to dive into that. We're also going to dive into thyroid health. We're going to dive into PCOS. We're going to dive into a bunch of stuff, and who better to ask than Dr. Spencer Nadolski, who is an obesity and lipid specialist physician. He is also known to be a no-bullshit kind of guy when it comes to fat loss. Uh, he, I mean, quite literally, he's one of the most jacked doctors, physicians I've ever seen, and he's been known as the doctor who lives. Him and his brother are both uh, extremely in good shape, and they really cut out all the bullshit. They're famous for doing memes on Instagram, and they're hilarious, but they're very to the point, and he is the type of person that will keep it real, raw, and relevant to you out there listening and wanting to lose fat and not get kind of tricked and duped by the gurus and the charlatans and the marketing out there that tries to hype us up and get us to buy into all these fad diets and such. So we're going to uh, basically bust the myths, crush the trends, avoid the fads, and we're going to teach you the real shit about calories, hormones, and fat loss. And once again, there's nobody better to do it with than the one and only Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. So without any further ado, let's get into this podcast and talk to the doctor. All right, so today we have Dr. Spencer Nadolski on the podcast. Uh, I've been following your work for a long time, man. It's it's been really cool to have you on here. It's going to be fun to kind of go over some of these topics today because I think you do a really good job of, uh, for lack of better terms, telling the truth <laughs> inside the fitness space and, and kind of trying to beat away the myths and the, the fads and things like that. Um, but before we dive into any of those topics, uh, the, the first question I have is kind of like your background and, and how you became almost like the doctor of fitness, right? Like you were the yeah. first one that I really recognized as like a legit doctor who was also actually extremely fit and into this stuff. So how did that all come about? Yeah, well, so my dad's a chemistry teacher, was a wrestling coach. My brother who's four years older than I am, a very good athlete. We were really into science. Uh, grown up to be good at athletics and then of course for health but then we you know I ended up going to college to play football and wrestle and after getting into sports performance and doing the science to get good at sports I really wanted to use that to get people just healthier and kind of prevent cure whatever chronic disease so I went through medical school went through residency which is a training after medical school depending on your specialty and then specialized further I went family medicine and specialized further into obesity medicine and then recently got another board certification in what's called lipidology which is like cholesterol so essentially I'm like a kind of like a cardiometabolic specialist at this point and really uh, the the way I got into you know exactly what you said kind of this doctor of fitness is because I saw you know a lot of these big names in the fitness world the online fitness world mind you you know, uh, John Berardi, he was kind of a mentor. He was big when I was like going through high school and then college and some of these other people, but I didn't see any actual like physicians. They were either PhDs, which, you know, again, we need researchers, but um, no physicians like uh, the doctor you'd go to see. They're doctors of whatever uh, degree that they got, but not physicians. So I said, look, there's nobody doing this. Why don't I just kind of get in with that crowd? I started speaking at some of their conferences and um, kind of learning the bro lingo, lingo, despite I was kind of a bro anyway, you know, the way I eat and, and train. So um, it all kind of clicked with me. And I was like, look, I think there's room here for like fitness professionals, like personal trainers to, to work with doctors and be a really uh, multidisciplinary part of a healthcare program. That's what I, I still think of it today. It just, it, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to do that because we got what's called silos of, of health where like, even like a family doctor, there's kind of like a silo between the primary care sometimes. And then like maybe the specialists, even though they kind of communicate, there's not this like in-house good discussion for each of the patient. So then you add in like personal trainers who should be, a, I think, strength coaches or personal trainers, an integral part of 
a multidisciplinary uh, health plan for individuals. And there's truly no system set up for that. For that. I've tried to set up a few, uh, depending on the health system I've been at. Um, and now that I'm in the cloud, I work with all sorts of trainers all over the place. So um, yeah, that's kind of how, that's kind of how it went. It was pretty much uh, the deal there. Do you feel like since you first started trying to kind of go down that path, do you feel like it's gotten better? Do you feel like there is more doctors that are kind of on the same page as you kind of connecting trainers and nutritionists and all these pieces together to have one umbrella of, of preventative care essentially? Yeah, I think more people are understanding the role of, uh, of lifestyle as medicine. In fact, there's a college that's basically, it's called the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which is new in the past, you know, five or uh, to 10 years. They're more of kind of like plant-based, almost like vegan-esque though, but um, there's more people at least thinking about this idea of lifestyle, exercise, nutrition as medicine. And, but so far there hasn't, I haven't seen anybody in a system-wide effort be able to make like a primary care clinic which what i think i, I think a, i think you should have like a fitness center have a, the doctor's offices in there that's what i think and so that you'd have like a teaching kitchen you'd have the fitness center of whatever that is and then you have a, a little uh physician's office and that way what you'd have is is the the gym membership would include being able to see the doctor if needed, but the doctor's there and can kind of converse with the community. Um, that's what I think, but it hasn't really been done. There's a few models I've seen out there, but just, I think it's getting better, but we got a long ways to go. And we have a, the issue is kind of like our healthcare system in a whole is, is pretty much broken, but uh, I don't know, maybe we'll, see, maybe we'll see something in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I think Anytime, uh, actually, my uh, general physician, it's funny, I actually live in the same neighborhood as him. He's much like you. He's very into fitness and he's Good. very interactive with his clients on a different level than anybody I've ever met. And, and that's why I respect you so much. I think it's so important. And, and I hope it kind of keeps moving in that direction. Um, at, at this point in your career, what do you do? Like, what are you still practicing as a physician in the hospital? I know you're with RP now, which is yeah. cool. I, I, I think I've literally interviewed everybody from RP except nice. for uh, on the podcast. I'm a big fan of what you guys do. Um, but kind of fill us in on your role there and your role outside of there. Yeah. So I was in the clinic last time I was in the clinic, it was 2017, early 2017, end of 2016, early 2017. And this company steady MD said, Hey, you have a big social media following. Why don't you like, why can't we license you in like all the different States around the United States? And then you could have all these patients like in the cloud all your followers. And I said, yeah, I've been wanting to do that. There's a lot of red tape. Each state has different laws. You got to have malpractice insurance and all these different things. So uh, they made me an offer and I said, sure. I said to my followers in 2016, Hey, I'm going to be online now. So if you want to be my patient, tons of people signed up. And now I, I rarely take on new patients because I had so many people uh, kind of influx and then and now I do so much with RP but like my goal is to go okay I have my small group of patients on it's about 200 or so now a normal doctor has like 2,000 patients where they you know they see somebody every 10 20 minutes or whatever thum, 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 daily in their clinic now I only have 200 patients I have like constant contact with them online I could probably get up to like 500 or so if that were my only job but I work with RP now, I want to, my idea is to kind of incorporate or to expand this idea of lifestyles medicine. So we have a team of registered dietitians who are also like strength coaches and kind of push this idea through the cloud and using telemedicine, telehealth to really help people improve their health throughout the world, really, not just the United States. So I do a little bit of all of that. For, for a lot of people listening, I think they wouldn't, they almost wouldn't even know what you would be doing for them because it's it's not very common for doctors to do what you do obviously there's there's yeah. not many who literally <laughs> do that online um so when you work with a client what are your focuses like what are you taking them through are you taking them through is it really just like lifestyle management is it like blood tests like kind of yeah. give us the rundown it's everything so like i want to look at a patient as a whole so like despite being an obesity and lipid specialist i don't only focus on those i could if somebody is sent to me you know, from their primary care doctor, and then I'm acting as a specialist. But I, I, 
take someone in and I'd look at their, you know, do they have health issues, whatever it is. Uh, I look at them from uh, their social health, their, their mental health, their physical health, of course. And then we kind of break it down and go like, look, do we, is there something that we can work on to move the needle to improve your health in some sort of way? Maybe it's sleep, maybe it's nutrition, maybe it's everything, maybe it's exercise. So, so we start there and then depending on how much they need, it may be, hey, try one of our diet templates and then one of our exercise templates. Or if I think that they need more comprehensive uh, help and, and accountability and more support, then they may be working with one of our RDs. So that's pretty much how it, how it works. Um, uh, and, then and then I follow them. I, I, get, I can order labs. I can uh, watch their health improve or not improve and try to kind of come in and strategize why they're not improving. You can monitor their blood pressure, all that stuff. Anything that you see like a regular family doctor for, that would be what I would do through the internet. But I would say from a more comprehensive standpoint, because I have the resources to be able to do that. As you're looking at these things, how correlated is uh, like healthy blood work and body composition. Cause I think there's kind of like, there's been a battle with IA, uh, if it fits your macros and kind of like clean eating and do calories matter. And we're going to kind of get into that soon. Um, but I'm just curious, like, do you, do you notice a correlation when people really start focusing on their health and their blood work and things like that? All of a sudden body comp just comes easier. Yeah. You know, so it's a chicken or the egg thing. I mean, honestly, if, if they, if they focus strictly on their body composition and they have adiposity related disease. So if they have, let's say they have type two diabetes or pre-diabetes and they want to lower their blood sugar. Well, in order to lower their blood sugar, we should probably focus on the adiposity. Now changing the quality of their diet, will have some small changes on their, on their blood sugars, but getting into a caloric deficit with the improved diet quality will have massive effects on their, on their blood sugars and lipids and all sorts of things and blood pressure as well. So um, I tend to do both and whether the person knows it or not, if we're focusing on quality, in general, the quantity comes down too, if that makes sense. So like it's never an either or, it's generally both in some sort of respect. Yeah, and I think it's, it's which one you focus on to get the other kind of thing, right? Like it kind of depends on the person's adherence, right? Um, yeah. Which is, is one of the things I want to talk about is just the, the relationship between calories, just in general energy balance and general health. Because I think there is, you know, there's a lot of people that say flexible dieting is great, which I believe in. And you can kind of eat whatever you want as long as you lose weight. And they have studies like the Twinkie diet that show, oh, yeah, like his blood work was better when he lost weight because of that. And he was eating Twinkies every day. And then there's people that almost get like it's like a religion to them. They get really worked up about that because that's unhealthy and it's processed food and there's artificial stuff what is like, what is your argument against those people? Like, how do you explain to them that the relationship between calories actually does influence health quite a bit? Yeah. It's just one of those things where it's, it, 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 it's a dichotomous thinking, you know? So like, yeah, the excess energy intake is what's fueling much of our chronic disease. And what they'll say is that they'll, they'll some of, if they're, if they're not very uh, up to date on like the information, they'll say, no, it's, it's because of the sugar and whatever. But if they understand that, no, eating high sugar laden, high fat types of foods drive the overeating because they're easily overeaten, then we can get to common ground going, okay, so you agree that it is the energy intake, but the quality of your food is driving the energy intake, if that makes sense. So we usually try to get to a common ground there. But like, if they simply think that it's the hormonal milieu from eating sugar-laden foods, we can then go, well, no, look, there's some studies where they were hypocaloric, meaning they're eating fewer calories and they're burning, regardless of what they ate, even if it was high sucrose, they still improved their, their, um, their metabolic diseases. So like, it depends. I, I like to get the common ground and go, okay, so you agree it is the calories. Mo if you get down to it to most people that are well-read or at some point, they, they will agree on that. Uh, there's usually a lot of straw man arguments that they throw out there at first. And then finally we get to common ground. But uh, if they don't, then we just go, look, it is the energy intake. Yes. The quality matters. The quality will have quality of the food will have changes independent of 
the energy intake, but the energy intake is the base of the pyramid that we have to take care of. Because if you don't take care of that, that's the underlying pathophysiology of all this chronic disease, that the, the visceral or the central adiposity or the central fat that we have. So take care of that first. If you take care of the quality at the same time, you'll kill two birds with one stone, but you can't just, and in general, when people fix their quality of their diet, they lower their energy intake. So that's what they're thinking. It's their, in their mind, they're like, no, I just, I stopped eating Twinkies or I stopped drinking soda. It's like, yeah, you lowered your energy intake. And they don't, they don't realize that. They just think I cut out sugar. But um, yeah, it's, it, you, you'd have to show them metabolic award studies and stuff like that. But in general, you can get to the common ground, as I said before. I think one of those arguments too is, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this point times, is, is insulin, right? insulin yeah. sensitivity and fasting and things like that. And I'd love if you can kind of hammer that one away because I get questions about that a lot on the podcast too. And there's even some people who have pretty large audiences who are still really grabbing onto those things. Um, but from what I've read and, and studied from people like you, it's really not as important as we once thought. I mean, I, I come from kind of a bodybuilding background. So once upon a time, insulin sensitivity was very important, but the more we kind of researched it, the more we realized it's not. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. So insulin sensitivity is extremely important from a metabolic health standpoint, but it's going to be based around our body composition, how much we sleep and our activity. Uh, and then there's genetic components, of course, as well there too. So like if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet, you can be very insulin sensitive. So what people think is that eating high carbs, and again, they don't differentiate, well, is it, are you eating lentils or are you drinking soda? That probably has a difference as well. But regardless, if you're, if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet and it's eucaloric and you're, and you're lean, eucaloric meaning you're eating as many calories as you're burning, your insulin sensitivity won't change. You're not gaining fat. That's the underlying pathophysiology of insulin resistance. So like people think that when you eat high carbs, you stimulate your, your pancreas to make insulin and that causes insulin resistance. That's not even, that's not even remotely true. So like uh, in general, you, you have to have a discussion and go, okay, you got to support your claims. And if the person has any idea of, of study design or anything, they will not be, they, they, they'll go, oh, you know what, you're right. But like a lot of times these gurus will say things that they don't, they just don't understand, right? They just don't, they don't even know what they're saying. And they just heard it from some other guru. And they're just kind of parroting what they said. And when it comes down to it, it's like, well, just show a study, show a study and, and see if you understand the methodology. And they're like, well, no, my friend ate 5,000 calories of pure fat and they didn't gain weight, they lost weight. It's like, you just don't, you can't just use these anecdotes. We gotta use like trial data and they can, they can never come up with it. Do you, do you feel like it's the same way with fasting? Like I'd love to get your opinions on fasting. Yeah, 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 you know? same, it's literally the same. Same with fasting and keto and those, those, those people tend to be, uh, they have like cult-like followings. So yeah. it's, it's um, you know, there's a few good gurus out there that, that really, you know, I get the questions every day on my Instagram lives every time. Well, what do you think about this doctor who says fasting's great? And I'm just kind of like, yeah, it's fine. If it helps you get into a caloric deficit, that's awesome. You know? Are there any health benefits besides that? Like, I, I understand that. Like, and I think they actually did like a, I, want, I think they called it a lean gain study, which was really cool because it was fi kind of finally showing like the 16-8 approach, just looking at body composition changes and that it really doesn't matter if, if it helps you adhere to the deficit, great. If not, don't worry about it. Um, but there are a lot of gurus that claim all these outlandish like hormonal effects and health benefits and longevity and, and things like that. Is, is any of that true is there any data to support it as far as we know from rigorous study design we have seen no added benefit in humans uh some of it comes from uh, animal data and like really in humans when you when you keep the calories the same whether it's chronic restriction versus intermittent fasting there tends not to be much of a difference there's some glycemic difference even you may have some glucose intolerance and different changes from fasting um, honestly though, it, it, it probably doesn't matter. And if I had to guess, I, I would guess that there may be a slight benefit to the fasting. There may be, but if I can't, I can't say for certain. Uh, and if I'm, if somebody, 
if someone were to put a gun to my head, I don't, I, I, I'd probably say there's, there probably isn't a difference, but I, I want to guess there, I want to hope there is just because it would be kind of cool, but I don't think there probably is not. Is that what? Yeah. You know what I, I, so like, I want to hope that there is just because it's kind of, it would be kind of cool. But as far as we can tell, based on the data, there's not. Well, I think it's one of those things too, that I, I don't remember who I was talking with. Uh, actually, I think it was our CSO, Brandon Roberts. I was saying like, do you get almost frustrated the more you look at research because it just kind of comes back to, oh, it's just energy balance. Oh, it's just energy balance over and over again. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, kind of. There's some cool stuff with like the chrono nutrition. Basically, when you eat, may I was gonna ask have that. metabolic differences, and that's and it's it's comes at an enzymatic level. Like we have these enzymes that um, cleave the triglycerides that are circulating your lipoproteins. All these different things that may be different uh, at different times of the day. We may harvest more energy at certain times, but like. Well, really what it comes down to is energy balance. And so like, it's funny, my brother and I, uh, we've been going to these obesity conferences for like a decade now. The most brilliant researchers and doctors and, and we hang out with them and at first we're like, this is really cool. And then towards the end now, it's just, it, it's really comes down to energy balance. You'll still get the gurus that come in and try to say, no, we've, we've got a study that proves it's the other way. And then the smarter gurus will pick apart the study and basically go, no, based on this, you, you, you're saying, it's all energy balance because of this, this, and this. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of boring, but at the same time, it's in a good way, it, it gives us more tools to, to work with. So like, if you want to do fasting, it's fine. I have a problem with people making weird claims because inevitably what happens is that they will see their success stories. Uh, someone lost 50 pounds, kept it off. That's great. What about all the people that failed and now they think that they're broken because of the magical uh, program that you told them is the secret to long-term weight loss didn't work for them. So they failed that without understanding the principles. They didn't fail because they're broken. They failed because it's just simply hard to stick to because our bodies are fighting us regardless. So like, that's what, that's the problem I have. I, if they're going to promote it for and be truthful about it, fine. But if they're going to uh, lie, that's, that's the issue. Do you think it comes from misinterpreting data? Like where some of the stuff that it's, and, and they're so confident about it. It's like, where, where do you even come up with this? How, how do you make those claims? I, I don't think it's misinterpreted. I think a lot of these people are, some of them are misinformed and they just, you know, that's, they don't, they're not very well read. I think the people, some of these people are super smart and they know how to, they know how to cultivate a following. You, you, you stick to one, um, one principle and really hammer that as a secret you're going to get a lot of people that are going to be successful, you know, and, and you can use those anecdotes, testimonials to then prove your point and everybody else is a liar. And then you create this huge following ego, whatever it is. Um, people like fame and fortune. So that's what I think is the driver. Yeah. A lot of marketing behind it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, I do, I want to dive into hormones. You kind of brought it up briefly because I think it's a really cool topic because it's just, so talked about lately, but I, I want to touch on something kind of random because you, you like kind of breezed over cholesterol um, a while back. And uh, I get questions about that all the time. And I know for a long time, even when I, I remember growing up and my family and my parents trying to avoid cholesterol at all costs and things like that. Um, what, what is the deal with cholesterol? I guess like, it, like, what does it do on our body? Do like, what should we be doing with our diet to either avoid it or to have it or, or what? Yeah. One of the most common, uh, issues I see is that people don't def differentiate between the cholesterol we eat and the cholesterol that's floating around in our serum, our serum cholesterol levels. So like, you know, it used to be before we see a magazine or whatever, or we see butter and butter is hard at, at um, room temperature. And we think if we eat that, I don't know, somehow that then becomes hardened in our, in our arteries or something like that. That's, that's the plaque, the atherosclerosis, but that's not really how it works. The, the, the real issue are these lipoproteins that carry the cholesterol that then get inside of our uh, blood vessels and then become like what we call retained. So these little lipoproteins uh, carry the cholesterol. They have to because cholesterol's um, uh, not water soluble. You know, you put oil in, into water, they separate. So they have to be carried by these proteins to then be delivered to the certain tissues and liver and whatever. So 
the real issue is the, are these little um, the little proteins, the little lipoproteins that get stuck in our artery wall, and then our immune system comes and grabs them, and then we start the atherosclerosis cascade. So when we eat just dietary cholesterol, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have a lot more floating in our blood. There's a little bit of an effect. So like when people avoid cholesterol, that's probably not the biggest, that's, that's probably not something to focus on as much. There's an effect there, but the most important thing with, from a dietary standpoint is probably saturated fat, and it's really uh, high amounts of saturated fat. And then in combination with a low soluble fiber diet and a low uh, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated fat diet. So if you're eating mostly saturated fat and no fiber and, and no polyunsaturated, monounsaturated fat, what it does is basically your liver doesn't recycle those, uh, those LDL, the low density lipoproteins. Those are the ones that really get stuck in our artery walls uh, that are carrying the cholesterol. Um, uh, so really that's the issue. So just eating cholesterol doesn't mean we're going to have high serum or blood cholesterol. Uh, it's probably more of the saturated fat. And then even then, um, what we don't know is if doing that is as harmful as like, we have genetic causes uh, of, of high cholesterol. And those people are really at, at a high risk. And then also those people who are metabolically unhealthy, remember the abdominal fat if you have high abdominal fat, you have high inflammation, it makes the little particles that are carrying the cholesterol easier to get stuck into your arteries and cause atherosclerosis. So uh, multiple things going on there, but just eating cholesterol isn't probably something to focus on. Is, is there a relationship between cholesterol and testosterone? Like I feel like, and I want to say it was T Nation, not to put them under the bus, and nothing wrong with T Nation, but they're really... The way they do their articles, I, and yeah, yeah. I think that was my first introduction to fitness when I was like 18, is just read T Nation. And I want to say one of them was talking about eating cholesterol to boost testosterone. And I remember that being a question that people have asked me in the past as well. Yeah, so all of our cells, this is something that too, all of our cells make cholesterol. They need, it's, it's a, it's a it, so from an endocrine standpoint, uh, our hormones are first made out of cholesterol. So it's, so it's thought that like, oh yeah, we should eat a bunch of cholesterol to make more testosterone, but that's not how it necessarily works. Our, our, our cells make plenty of, of cholesterol to make our hormones. So if you're not eating any cholesterol, it probably doesn't matter. Uh, there may be a small little effect, but really it's, it's tiny. You don't need to eat cholesterol to, to make testosterone. Our, our bodies can make it by itself. Um, so we don't need to get more of it. Um, and even if, even if you raised it by a small little bit, um, whether that has what we call like clinical effects, meaning like, so if you raise it by 50 points, is that really going to help you build more muscle? Probably not. You have to really boost your testosterone much higher than it is right now to have any sort of muscle building effect. Now I will say there's something interesting about eating. There's, there's been studies on drinking, uh, skim milk versus whole milk and also egg whites versus whole eggs. Mm -hmm. And the muscle protein synthesis seems to be higher with the higher fat, higher cholesterol uh, food. And I don't, it doesn't come from boosting your testosterone. It, there may be some other effect. I'm not sure, it's, nobody really knows the exact effect. And I, I've tried to know, it's like, is it from eating more calories? Are you getting more calories? They seem to control for everything. I think it needs to be repeated, but that's, that's something separate, but interesting and related. I actually think the article literally said, don't eat egg whites, eat whole eggs kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. or testosterone. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's also why it's important for people like you to be doing what you're doing and, and actually have social media accounts with big followings and, and putting out a good message and, and a lot of funny memes about it, because I think that a lot of people see the title or an abstract and they immediately like jump to a conclusion because it sounds sexy in a blog and it can really stir people the wrong way because they don't know any better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of why I do it. Um, I'm getting into YouTube now. I, I, it's a different, it's, I feel like I can do more long form type of stuff. The memes are funny, but um, sometimes not that it's unprofessional. It's just that, I, I feel like, okay, I want to make sure people understand that like, like I'm a physician too, and I can actually go into a lot more depth than just kind of a funny quip, a little 
funny thing. Although it, it has been fun to get people's attention and kind of make little one-liner zingers uh, doing that. Yeah. I would, I think you should definitely do that, man. I think it would be super helpful for, as somebody who runs a team of coaches, like somebody like you on YouTube doing, you know, 10, 20 minute videos would be super helpful on these topics because there's a lot of YouTubers who are not as well-versed as you yeah. who are putting out content that have a million subscribers. And it's like, uh, it's insane. And, and I think it's fun. There's people like Lane Norton who blatantly put the names out there, which, oh yeah. I would never do that to somebody. It's hilarious to see. And, and yeah. the videos are good how he debunks them. But he puts um, them on us. It's fine. He's, he's a good friend of mine too. And so, yeah, I, I sometimes name him. I sometimes don't. Um, he's a little bit more aggressive than I am. But then there's people that are much more passive. I'm kind of in between. Uh, I definitely put their topic on blast though. Like I'll just blast the idea of it. Yeah. Uh, and Because I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what's it may turn off people when you aggressively attack them. I'm not sure. I don't know. Not that I'm like a marketing genius or anything. I've gotten decent at understanding what people like and don't like, but I, I, he has a big following, but then there's other people that are passive that have a big following. I think it just depends on who you are. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think some people love the controversy. They love that. Yeah. Um, and some people get uncomfortable and they don't. Like yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just different strokes for different folks. Really. Yeah. So before, before we move on from the fat topic, I, I do want to ask, uh, like, what are the health benefits of saturated fat? I know for a while, um, I don't know if it was the paleo movement or if it was like the, I mean, everybody was doing the butter and the coffee and, and um, keto yeah. came out, but there was a lot of people that were promoting more saturated fat because for yeah. so long it was like demonized. Um, why, like, what was the claim behind what they were saying? Same kind of thing. Oh, it's, it's good for you. And, and what they'd really say was not from the saturated fat. It was some of the things that were contained in the foods that had saturated fat. So there was this one website I can't stand, but they, would, they, they put butter as a superfood because it contained uh, a little bit of vitamin K2, which is not a, a, a usual uh, vitamin we get. We usually get K1 from plants. K2 is, is, is kind of an interesting compound. But um, anyway, uh, it was kind of like, oh, okay, you're saying butter is a superfood because of the minuscule amount of K2 that like it, it goes back to, that's like eating peanut butter for, for protein. It's actually worse than that. It's wor much worse than eating peanut butter for protein. It's, it's like the, the analogy someone told me once. It's like drinking martinis just to eat olives. It's so stupid and it's like, you can get, there's not much, there's nothing beneficial about eating more saturated fat. There's absolutely nothing. Our bodies can make saturated fat. There's probably benefit from, from eating certain foods that may contain some saturated fat, but like eating more saturated fat, just to eat saturated fat is not, there's nothing beneficial about it. Um, some people may talk about eating coconut oil. Yeah, there may be some, uh, medical nutrition benefits of, of having coconut oil, but for the mass majority of people, there's not really much of a benefit. So like people just love making up stuff. They cherry pick something and then they run with it. Uh, and that's the stuff that I get so mad about. So nothing really special about eating extra saturated fat. It is important to note that they're saturated fat. It's an umbrella term. Uh, it's kind of a biochemistry thing, but there are multiple saturated fatty acids and they each have different effects on our body. And then to make it more complicated, it probably depends on what the food, the fatty acids come packaged in. So like take, for example, drinking butter, you're eating butter versus eating whole yogurt, whole yogurt, not non-fat, but whole, whole fat yogurt. And the effects on your lipids are gonna be different based on the food that it becomes packaged. And even if they have a similar fatty acid profile, calcium, the protein, and there's other things like these milk fat, uh, globular membrane uh, uh, little proteins as well, like all sorts of different things. But so it, it's complicated, but just to eat saturated fat, just to eat saturated fat is, is ridiculous. I think it's funny because it kind of going back to the idea of that everything comes back to energy balance. There, it always seems like what works is kind of in the middle. It's like, oh, it's not that bad for you, but you probably shouldn't do a lot. And, and there's these people that are either anti or they're like extremists yeah. with it, you know, and I remember coconut oil was a big thing too. Like you, yeah. you kind of brought that up, but um, the multi-chain triglycerides being yeah. converted to energy easier. And everybody was like, Oh yeah. shit, we got to put coconut oil with everything. Um, 
So, and, and I use some coconut oil and I've been asked, I'm like, honestly, I, I like taste of coconut oil. So I use a little bit yeah. on my, when I cook, but just a little bit one time a day, <laughs> not for yeah, any so fat they, burning. Yeah, they become extreme. I'm going to put a stick of butter. I'm going to put a, uh, a dollop of coconut oil in my coffee and boom, all of a sudden their cholesterol and their blood is just super high. Uh, it's like, okay, what are you doing that? Well, it's because... I'm going to burn more fat. I'm like, you're eating a ton of fat. What are you talking about? It's not going to do anything. Like, what do you, anyway? Yeah. It, well, it is, is, has there been studies that show uh, more fat burning because of, of that? But it's really just because, well, if you take in more energy from fat, you're going to burn more energy from fat because it's there. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of these um, metabolic reward studies where they switch people, they keep their protein the same, and then they either ramp their carbohydrate up and keep their fat very low versus um, carbohydrate very low and fat high up. So they start oxidizing more fat, but it's because they're eating more fat. Now I will say that eating medium chain triglycerides uh, may be more readily used as fuel than the longer chains, um, but the effect is so small, like it's not something to focus on. So we're kind of starting to dive into hormones, so I'm gonna kind of transition over that, but as a blanket statement, do you think it is kind of overblown right now? Like, I think there's a lot of talk about hormones and people, it's almost like fear mongering. Like people are very afraid that dieting is going to cause hormonal issues and that their hormones, hormones are dysfunctional and all these crazy things. Do you think there's merit to that? Or do you think it's just getting too hyped up? Yeah, it's a lot of hype and a lot of misunderstanding. Like, so what do you, it's like, what do you mean by hormones? It's like, ah, it's my hormones. It's, I can't lose weight. I'm like, what do you mean? That doesn't make sense. Like, tell me literally what, tell me what do you mean specifically about your hormones? And it, it's interesting. You don't get very good answers, of course, because it's just when you start saying, oh, it's my hormones, I can't lose weight. If you leave it ambiguous enough and someone doesn't understand it, then they'll be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. But it doesn't make sense when you actually know what you're talking about. Because it's like, okay, well, if you're hypothyroid, yeah, I have hypothyroid. I have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, um, so I have to take a thyroid supplement, a medicine, to replace the thyroid that my thyroid's not making anymore. So if you have a low amount of thyroid in your body, metabolic rate's lower. That makes sense to me. But once you're replaced, you know, you got normal thyroid levels. So then, what other hormones? Well okay, I'm postmenopausal. I don't have any estrogen anymore. Okay. Well, what happens? Well, you know, there may be an effect on appetite and there may be a nutrient partitioning effect where you may store more visceral fat regularly, uh, more readily than if you didn't have that, uh, or than if you had estrogen. So like postmenopausal women. Um, but it's a small little bit of effect. But then if you're just dieting, um, like if you have obesity, let's say, and you have 50 pounds to lose, uh, just dieting is not going to screw those up. In fact, dieting would be very beneficial if you have low testosterone because of your um, obesity. Dieting would actually boost your testosterone. Now, this is different than if you're lean, relatively lean. Let's say you only have like, you, know, you, you kind of have some blurry abs. You want to get super shredded. You get shredded. Then you may have some hormonal dysfunction because now your body thinks you're starving. It doesn't want to reproduce. Your brain's not communicating with your testicles anymore. Or if you're a woman, they're not com communicating with your ovaries anymore. You stop having your period. You don't have estrogen anymore. Um, now you start losing your bone mass and, and now you're infertile. So yeah, there, there can be some hormonal dysfunction from dieting and it depends on where you are. But just saying like, oh, it's my hormones or whatever, doesn't really make any sense. Do you think there's a pretty big gap between those people? Like the general folk just trying to maybe see a couple abs <clears throat> versus the bodybuilder? Because obviously when you're getting shredded like that, like you said, there's yeah. a difference. But do you think that's a pretty big gap and people just assume that if, when you get lean, that's just part of it? Yeah, there, there's this weird, it's, again, it's, a, it's, it's everybody throws the baby out with the, the, the bath water or whatever you want to say. So on, on Instagram, there, it's the diet culture. There's anti-diet culture and then there's the diet culture. Uh, but really, if you're a good clinician or a coach or whatever, you understand the differences between like, hey, this person probably shouldn't be dieting. They have a history of chronic dieting. They're always trying to lose five to 10 pounds. They're miserable. They clearly have body dysmorphia issues. They're different. They, like, 
we should treat them differently than somebody who has obesity or uh, central adiposity and has hormonal issues versus a physique competitor who uh, understands the potential health detriment that physique competing can do, but just their, that's their sport. So that's, that's what they want to do. So like if we could actually think in a nuanced uh, way, we'd be able to differentiate between all of them. So yeah, there's confusion because like you get the anti-dieter saying people shouldn't diet. It's like, what? I just had it. Yes. I, someone just said diets don't work. It's like, well, that's simply not true. Number one. Uh, and people like, well, people regain a lot of weight after dieting. Well, yeah, there, there'll be a lot of people, but it's, it's really the issue for the, the semi lean people that continually trying to diet those people. We should probably rein them back on trying to chronically diet versus someone who has a lot of excess adiposity. Maybe it's good for them to at least attempt to diet and do it in a sustainable fashion. So really we just got to, it just depends on the person. Yeah. And I think that, that answer frustrates people when you say it depends, yeah. you know, <laughs> black and white. That's why the gurus, I mean, I wish I, I wish I had as many followers as some of these gurus. Um, the bottom line is I probably never will simply because I think people want to have their cult. My, my kind of cult like following is people that are sick of the BS and want the reason and logic. Unfortunately, that's not as many people as the other, as the other side, but that's okay. I'm okay with that. Yeah. With, with things like uh, you mentioned thyroid, you mentioned menopause, like all these these potential hormonal issues, um, what's the downstream effect on the metabolism? Because I think that's what a lot of people tend to think is the issue when they say, oh, my hormones are bad, so my metabolism sucks and I can't lose weight because of it, right? Or I have low thyroid, so this is yeah. what's happening. Yeah, so like again, yeah, if you have low thyroid, hypothyroidism, you replace your thyroid and, you know, again, there are some slight um, little special things you can do there. Like I can give T4, T4 is the kind of somewhat inactive thyroid that we take by mouth. You can actually give T3, which is what our body's supposed to convert the T4 into T3 in, in our tissues and the rest of our body. But some people don't may not do it as well. So you can give a little bit of T3 and that might boost their metabolic rate more than if they were just taking T4. But it has a very small effect. It's like a few kilograms of, of weight loss as opposed to like, yeah, you lost 50 pounds because of this difference. Um, uh, so like when somebody says that again, you just getting down to the bottom, like, what do you, what do you mean now losing weight specifically, no matter what, when you lose weight, your metabolism, your basal metabolism will go down. It's, it's a fact you you're losing, you're losing body mass or body mass is metabolically active. Your metabolism goes down. That's normal. Now, what people are really worried about is what's called metabolic adaptations that your, your metabolism goes down further than what we'd expect based on your on your body weight and everything like that based on calculations and that tends to be normal as well it, it may be worse if you do an aggressive uh diet in short period of time versus not but uh, again now like i'm doing a video on pcos and a lot of people with pcos like why you know they feel like they can't lose weight well they say it's their hormones what do you what do you mean by that again when you look at the studies, it doesn't seem their metabolism's much different. There may there's some study that suggests maybe a lower basal metabolic rate, but um, some that don't say that either. We make some diet templates based on some of that data, but uh, again, it's there may be some hormonal differences of where you store the fat and where you burn the fat, maybe a little bit, but not a huge effect. Uh, there are some pathological hormonal differences. People have something called Cushing's disease, where they can have um, uh, high, high amounts of cortisol uh, produced in their body, which can cause a big appetite change and a big storage or nutrient partitioning effect where they store a lot of uh, weight around their, their waist, as opposed to like, they'll have like thin kind of skinnier arms and legs, but a big waist. Um, that's, that's kind of what we see. But like in general, like hormones don't have a huge effect other than like our appetite. That's the big driver. So if they're affecting your appetite, then of course, when you're eating more and you're tired, and you're moving less, uh, that's kind of the, the key there. With something like PCOS, is there actual dietary recommendations with like, let's say macros or anything like that? Or is it just a matter of, you know, you're just going to have to diet a little bit harder or a little bit longer? 
that's kind of the, that's kind of the key, and that's the the stance we take. We do switch. We've switched around the macronutrients a little bit in case there is a a glycemic and metabolic difference. But in the end, it's it's really like finding a way to achieve a caloric deficit. So like, yeah, we we make the it tends to be so there there are people with PCOS that will do just fine in our RP diet temp, uh, RP diet templates or RP apps and whatever. We tell them not to do those anyway. Just if they have a health thing, they're supposed to go to RP Health, which is our sister company. But um, in general, the people that find our RP Health templates, which is like hypothyroidism and PCOS, and I'll do a diabetes one and whatever, we do make those a little bit more aggressive in terms of calorie restriction, and then we do slight changes in the macros. But overall, like it's any diet will work as long as you're getting in a caloric deficit. I think uh, uh, hormones tend to be a scapegoat for a lot of people, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's something they can point a finger at to give them an excuse as to, to why they're not being successful. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a mean way. Yeah, no, I, no, I know exactly what you're saying. And it's, I think we all want to, if we're, if it's hard to do something, we want to point our fingers at something to kind of take the blame. And the thing is there shouldn't be any blame. It should be just that like dieting is kind of hard yeah. regardless. Uh, and, and that should be the focus we can do everything that's we know is based on science and our experience that can increase your your um, success rate. But in the end, if you fail, it's not because you're broken necessarily. It's because it's just hard, and you're not to blame. You're not a, a worse person. That's the issue. So like people feel like they're getting shamed and blamed, and that shouldn't be the case. It's actually something I've tried to bring light to in, in our content is like, it's okay that a diet is not easy. You know, there's going to be times where you will be hungry. That's, I mean, by definition, a deficit is literally restriction. So you have to expect yeah. that. And instead of selling people snake oil and saying like, it should be easy, there's no stress. Like that's just bullshit. It's not true. It is. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you on, on hormones is the role fat plays in those hormones. Uh, there's, there's obviously a role there but i think sometimes people assume that if you have a high fat diet you're going to like supercharge your hormones um and and you can correct me if i'm wrong my understanding would be like calories actually play a bigger role so even if you have a high fat diet if you're in a huge deficit you're probably not going to be in the healthiest place yeah honestly it's uh it's it's more about the energy balance so like you know they talk about eating higher fat to boost their testosterone not much of an effect um it's more about that and like when you restrict like when I did a comp, I did a bodybuilding competition. It was now six years ago, Ugh. but uh, seems like yesterday. But my testosterone went down to around two hundred. It's because I was freaking starving myself basically by the end. Not even, I was eat, still eating like two twenty five hundred calories. So like pretty high for someone, but like for me with a lot of muscle and like used to eating like four thousand calories a day, it was a good restriction. My testosterone just plummeted, and it was not because it was low fat or low anything like that. It was because it was just low calorie. So our bodies sense that we're starving. Hey, you should probably, if you're starving, you shouldn't be reproducing. Let's take that away. We don't need that process right now. Let's just try to survive. So um, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. Cause I think that's, that's kind of like what I've been saying for a, a while now. So it's always yeah. nice to have a doctor come on and, yeah. <laughs> and agree. Uh, the, the last question I have for you for today is uh, kind of like your stance on aggressive versus slow and sustainable fat loss. I see this conversation is coming up more and more. And I think there's some people that are really for like, Hey, let's just be more aggressive. You're not gonna lose muscle. Just get after it and get out of the diet. And then there's other people that are talking about it's, it's much more sustainable to go slow and take your time and it's less stressful on your body. And obviously, I, in my opinion, there's a middle ground. I think it really depends on the person, but I'd, I'd yeah. be curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, super. Absolutely depends on the person. We just came out with our, our diet app uh, data, uh, which is kind of cool. It kind of shows, depending on how long you diet and, and, and rates of weight loss that are best. In, in general, like for me, my, my guidelines are if you're a little bit leaner, like you don't have a ton of fat to lose go to six to eight weeks, you know, half of a percent of your body weight to like 0.75% of your body weight uh, per week of weight loss is probably reasonable. Um, now, the, the more fat you have to lose, like if you're 300, 400 pounds, the more aggressive you can be uh, and probably the more successful you'll be in the long run. 
So it just depends on the person. So like, think about it. if you're three, 400 pounds and you're taking, you're only dieting for six to eight weeks at a time and you're going at a slow pace, you're never going to lose that weight. Like it's going to be so long that the light at the end of the tunnel is not, just not there. Versus if you aggressively lose weight a percent or even a percent and a half or even more of your weight per week in the beginning and you get motivated, all of a sudden it gets you feeling good. You're sleeping a little bit better. You feel like you have a little bit more energy. Now you can work out. All of a sudden it becomes kind of like a force multiplier thing. So, and really the studies looking at obesity tends to be that those who diet more, a little bit more aggressively than slower tend to do better in the long run. But again, it really depends on the person because there'll be some people that lose weight slower that will be very successful. So I don't like to make absolutes, of course. Um, uh, but these are kind of some of the things we see. Well, I think natural bodybuilders are a good example of that. You know, there's some people that will take 12 to 16 weeks to prep. And there's other people that are, you know, 24 to 36 weeks, which is just, I, I've done, I, I think when I, back when I prepped, because it was about six or seven years ago as well, oh, you just, okay. it was a 12 week prep. That's all there was. It was like, you have 12 yeah. weeks to get to stage. And uh, so I can't imagine doing it for 24 to 36 weeks personally, but, um, but there are people who extend it out pretty damn far now. Yeah. I think the diet fatigue, the psychology of it, I think that's that's one of the issues that I ran into. I went really slow. I was with the 3DMJ guys, and they're kind of that longer, slower. Um, I think by the end, I was getting a little bit of a diet fatigue. I think I probably could have gone a little bit harder. You risk losing some muscle if you go a little bit harder. Like you got to, ideally, you would go as aggressively as you can without losing muscle, I think. But yeah. um, again, these guys are super successful. Who am I? I'm not a successful bodybuilder. I, I, I hate, I, I, I don't think I could ever do it again just because it's just socially it was, it was tough. And then I get really irritable when I'm hungry. So <laughs> I can totally get it. Yeah. Um, man, I want to respect your time. This has been great. Uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some wisdom and kind of busting some myths for us. I think the audience is really going to like this. Where can everybody find all of your content so they can follow and learn more? Yeah, Instagram at Dr. Nadolsky, D-R-N-A-D-O-L-S-K-Y. And then YouTube, um, you can uh, connect to that one, my Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. I'm trying to put new stuff out each week. I got a videographer and all this stuff trying to, trying to, trying to make a, a, plat a different platform uh, grow as well. Perfect. I'll link all that in the show notes.